Hello, and welcome to Horror Origins Episode 8, Creatures in the New York Subway. In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at the Robert Johnson story titled Far Below. It was the first story that to use the New York subway system as a sinister setting for monsters burrowing up from beneath and threatening humanity. On a personal note, I'll throw in here that um, there was a slight delay you may have noticed between this episode and the episode before. I'm in the process of moving, which has thrown my life into complete chaos here. So I apologize for that, but uh, moving forward, you should have these episodes every other week uh, in your inbox or podcast box. But let's get going. All right, so let's get to know the author a little bit. Robert Johnson is actually a pretty interesting guy. He was born into a railroad family, which I think is worth noting because of the content of the story we're about to take a look at. And in the 1920s, he became a press agent for a traveling circus. And throughout his life, he had sort of a weird uh, affiliation with circuses and circus stories and circus circus paraphernalia. Um, It was a big part of his life. He was a lifelong bachelor. And as self-categorized, he called himself an outsider. He moved to San Francisco in the 1930s and became good friends with Clark Ashton Smith and was a member of the local Fortean Society. Now, I didn't exactly remember what a Fortean Society was, and it took me a a minute of Googling around to figure it out, and then uh, I realized, ha, I knew what this was. It's a a society-based on the philosophy of Charles Fort. Charles Fort, of course, was a skeptic with an open mind. He devoted a lot of his time and energy to the pursuits of the paranormal and the unexplained. He's sort of the forefather of cryptozoology. He himself posited a whole lot of uh, really bizarre ideas, not the least of which, uh, which I'll just mention here, was the Super Sargasso Sea, which is worth Googling because that's just... uh, whole crazy thing. Uh, His society produced a newsletter that expounded upon his works, uh, his philosophy. This kind of group was found throughout the United States. This was just particularly the the San Francisco one, um, because the one that he was a member of. And it's the kind of group you definitely want your weird fiction authors to be a part of. It sort of seems right in there, right in their wheelhouse. H.P. Lovecraft, in fact, even wrote a fan letter to Johnson after reading one of his stories. By way of a repayment, he included Lovecraft as a character in the story we're going to be reading today. So there's going to be sort of a blatant name drop of Lovecraft in there. Uh, It's it's more fun than annoying, I promise. Uh, He did serve in World War II as an artillery, in in an artillery command unit, and was by all accounts a skilled gauche painter. And if you want to see examples of that style of art, I'll have a link in the show notes for that as well. All right, but enough about the man. Uh, Let's get into the story. Now, the copy that I read was from Weird Tales 32, or Weird Tales 32 Unearthed Terrors, uh, produced by Bonanza Books. And we begin the story by delving down into the subterranean tunnels of the New York subway system which I'm pretty happy about because I love stories that take place in the underground. I don't know why, but there's just something creepy and alluring about what, about the journey down into the unknown dark beneath us. 
the unnamed narrator, seems to be a new guy on the job, or maybe he's a writer um, looking for some sort of story or inspiration. And he's been given access uh, in, to an interview and access um, by a man named Commander Gordon Craig of the Special Division. And we find our main character and um, Commander Craig uh, in the subterranean office in the subway of New York City. The story is presumably present day, and so we can assume that the story, at, when it was written, uh, takes place in the late 1930s. The office is small and packed with things, electrical instruments, monitoring devices. Large on the wall is a map of the subway, with a little indicator light that represents the train, and as the train moves, the lights blink on and off, showing its position in the tunnel. Craig makes a point to say how all of this equipment, including that map on the wall, was put together and built at great taxpayer expense. Commander Craig explains that what they're doing down here in the dark is guarding against something. Something hideous and unnamed. Something that is kept secret from those who live their lives in, the, in blissful ignorance in the city above. And from the people who pass fleetingly by in the tunnels aboard the trains. Johnson, I think, does a pretty good job um, not letting you as the reader in on what's going on right away. Here we learn the first tidbit, you know, that there's something that's being guarded against, but you don't yet learn of the nature of the threat or how, how well the struggle against these things is, is going. Apparently, uh, the things that are being guarded against really only seem to cause problems in a five-mile stretch of tunnel. And, the, of course, it's the darkest and the deepest stretch of tunnel. And that there are several substations, like the one we find our main character in, along this line, um, each one containing about ten armed men. Commander Craig is quite proud of the little army of people he has down here uh, under his, his authority. Then... Things take a darker turn when Craig describes how much strain on the mind the work can be. How a man went mad down here. And he and his own his men had spent weeks searching for him, only hearing his howling at the patrols in the darkness. That they knew he was gone because the look that came over his eyes when he was finally found, reflective in the darkness. And how they had to eventually gun him down. And how other physical features that had changed on the man but uh, he won't elaborate just yet on what those might be. So there we are with the second tidbit that uh, Johnson drops along the way. It's not just a straight-up fight, that there's some sort of corrosive nature to the evil that can claim you if you spend too much time down here in the tunnels. I'll point out here that although not a whole lot about the creature's physical description is given, they are clearly the canine-faced ghouls of the Lovecraftian mythos, or at least a close facsimile thereof. The corrosive nature of the ghouls in this mythos and in Lovecraft's, um, you know, can be seen in, in Lovecraft's story, Pikmin's Model, and then later, um, after the character reportedly has vanished from the home in 1926, Pikmin reappears in a, as a ghoul and in a later story by Lovecraft called The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. So this element has its own sort of arc to it, too, which is kind of fun. It's not all bad, though. Uh, Craig says they get paid very well for the work they do, 
And he makes a point to allude to the fact that he makes a boatload of money doing what he does. Certainly a lot more than he did as a professor at the National History Museum, which is why the government selected him for his role down here doing this job. His specialty was in gorillas and apes. And then Craig sort of talks about that first specimen he saw when he took the job, right? So it must have had something sort of ape-like about it. How it was pinned to the wreckage of the crashed train, um, and that it writhed and died in the lights of the rescue party that had gone down that Craig was a part of. But that it wasn't an ape. He makes that quite clear. I will um, read a little bit of the story here where that first specimen was found in that wreckage of the crashed train in the subway. They knew that the train had been deliberately derailed. The mutilated track proved that beyond all doubt. No less than three ties had been taken up and laid some distance away down the tunnel, and the condition of the earth about the wrecked cars showed conclusively that extensive mining and sapping had taken place there. It was like a gigantic molehill, only worse. And while I'd been analyzing stomach fluids and body tissue to try and find out what my subject fed upon, they'd all been burying, secretly and with most elaborate precautions, the half-desiccated corpses of half a dozen men and women, and children too, who, well, they hadn't died in the wreck, old boy. They hadn't died in the wreck any more than that screaming thing that hid its eyes from the lights when they found it pinned to the wreckage where it had been caught while trying to drag a dead victim out. God, what a hideous shambles that place must have been before the wrecking crew got there. Mercifully, of course, there was total darkness. The poor devils who were merely injured never knew what charnel horrors were going on in the Stygian depths about them, nor cared, no doubt, in their agony. A few of them gibbered afterwards about green eyes and claws that raked their faces, but of course all that was set down to delirium. Even one man who had his arm chewed half off never knew. Surgeons amputated the rest immediately and told him when he had regained consciousness that he'd lost it in the wreck. He's still walking the streets today, blissfully ignorant of what almost happened to him that night. Oh, you'd be surprised, old boy, how you can hush up a thing if you've got a whole city administration behind you. And believe me, we did hush matters up. No newspaper reporter was ever allowed to see the wreck, freedom of the press or no freedom of the press. The government wanted to appoint a commission to investigate. We squelched it. And by the time the crews had cleaned out the smashed train and removed it from the, removed the last victim, the special subway detail had gone into action. And it's been on steady duty ever since. It's been on duty for the last 20-odd years. So there we go. We find that that first crash that set the whole thing in motion had been done deliberately. And the special division had been created to guard the subway. An extensive creation and very expensive to taxpayers and worth protecting. The whole thing was hushed up and had been guarded for by him, Craig, and his men for the past 20 years. Even the victims of the crash never really knew what had happened to them in the dark, what was hurting them, feeding upon them. Craig recounts one poor man who was knocked unconscious and still doesn't know that his missing right arm was from one of those things eating it rather than from the crash itself, like we heard. In those early days, they tried to get rid of the monsters any way they could. We find that 
Craig and his men tried dynamite, poison gas, tunneling of their own to go after the monsters, but nothing worked. Lovecraft is mentioned here in the story, uh, where Johnson is clearly hanging a lantern on this story as an homage to him. Craig states that this was perhaps where his stories, Lovecraft's, gained their realism and authenticity. Although he doesn't really expound on how a fiction author may have been privy to the secret struggle down here in the subway. Although, let's not forget that, although Lovecraft is associated strongly with Providence, Rhode Island, he did live in New York at a t for a time, so it's not completely out of the realm of possibility in this world's mythos. Perhaps if you were, uh, or if you are not a fan of Lovecraft, um, you might find this reference to be a bit too blatant and a turn-off, but uh, honestly, it's it's the only little tiny one in here, and once you're through it, it doesn't come up again, and so I don't think it does detract much from the actual narrative of the story. Anyway, Craig continues, and speculates wildly, without evidence, that there is some sort of cavern far below uh, on some sort of fault line, and that his subway tunnels come just a little bit too close to that cavern, and that's how they get into the tubes, or at least that five-mile stretch of them. But nowadays, the things that are so horrifying are no longer the hunters. We find that they are the hunted. Their suspected telepathic communication is no match for the superpowers of modern man's technology. Machine guns, listening devices, light sensors are all employed to, the alert, to alert the attack teams that the creatures are in the tunnels and then sent out to dispose, them, dispose of them. I think this is a really fun twist in the story. We learn that these monsters are not feared and are routinely decimated by the might of modern man's technology. It's a great phrase. So often in weird fiction, you have the mystical and the occult having true power, and the inventions and powers of modern man are small and ineffective against it. But in this, I mean, hell yeah, our ingenuity and machines have won the day down here in the dark. They, they, so we find out that Craig and his men capture these animals from time to time and create a horrible little zoo down in the dark. Craig explains how they use them to secure funding for their little operation, show high-profile government officials and benefactors, and suddenly they're on board with the expense. Afraid to speak out of what, about what they've seen for fear of accusations for them of them being crazy. At this point, you almost start to feel sorry for the, the creatures in the subway. Nobody really tries to understand them, what exactly they want or what they're doing, assuming because that first incident, because of that first incident, that they really only come out to feed and hurt people. The assumption that they're all evil and that they're without question deserve to be slaughtered and abused in this way is sort of troubling. Perhaps... Speaking to civilized man's assumed righteousness and the subjugation of native and or foreign entities. I will add that if these things truly are the ghouls that are written about in Lovecraft stories, yes, they are horrible at times, but in the Dream Quest, quite intelligent and helpful, not really all that animalistic at all. And then, from a scientific standpoint, they seem to have this telepathic ability which is not really gone into too far in the story. It's briefly mentioned, but simply slaughtering them does nothing to help understand how this ability of theirs works, which could be extremely enlightening, but 
none of that is, is the game plan for Craig. He just wants to shoot them all. We get back to that weird, corrupting power that they seem to have. As horrible as, as these creatures seem to be, what really starts to gnaw away at you when you're down here guarding people against them is what Craig refers to as the cosmic horror of them. Some sort of strange dread and loathing that permeates your mind and body over time. Just then, an electric sound uh, of a souped-up handcart races by the opening to the little office that we find our characters in, startling our narrator and Craig. There's a flickering on one of the light sensors, and Craig activates the listening device to hear what's going on down the tunnel, which I think is a really fun bit, so I'm going to read that for you now, too, just to give you a, a, a taste of the story. Riot car number one, my friend said, grimly. Our own version of the squad automobiles above ground. Just one of the little electric hand cars used in subway construction, but souped up by our engineers until it'll do nearly 80 miles an hour. It could traverse the entire sector in less than five minutes if it had to. But it doesn't, of course. Another one, also with machine gunners aboard, left 105th Street at the same time. They'll meet somewhere along the tunnel's length, with the uh, uh, disturbance between them. Let's listen to him. He crossed the room to the strange apparatus, through switches and adjusted dials. There was a burring and crackling from what looked like an old-fashioned radio amplifier that stood in one of the cabinets. Microphones, every hundred feet along the tunnel, said my friend. Another small fortune to install, of course, but another great step forward in our efficiency. A man listens all night long at a switchboard, and you'd be surprised to know what he hears sometimes. We have to change operators pretty often. Ah, there we are. Microphone number 290, below one of the busiest corners, even at this hour of the night. In all the great metropolis. And listen, you hear that? That was a sound that brought me out of my chair. A strange, high tittering, blasphemously off-key that merged into a howl, then a moan. There we are, my friend grated. One of them, certainly, perhaps more than one. Hear that scratching on the rustle of the gravel? All unsuspecting, of course. They're broadcasting their presence, unaware that we modern human beings have got a few supernatural powers of our own. Nowadays, and they're totally unaware that, from both directions, death is sweeping down upon them, on truckling wheels. But a little moment more, and, ah, you hear that shriek? That howling? That means they've sighted one of the cars. They're fleeing madly along the tunnel now. Voices getting fainter. And no, yes, ha, know that they double back. The other car. They're trapped, caught between them. No time to dig or burrow down into their saving Mother Earth like the vermin that they are. No, no, you devils. We've got you. Got you. Hear them yell. Hear them shriek in agony. That's the lights, you know. Blazing searchlights trained on dark accustomed bodies. Burning, searing withering them like the actual blazing heat. And now, brat-a-tat-tat, that's our machine guns going into action. Silenced guns, with maxims on them, so that the echoes don't carry to the upper levels and make men ask questions, but throwing slugs of lead, for all that, into cringing white bodies and flattened white skulls. Shriek! Shriek, you beasts from hell! Shriek, you monsters from the charnel depths! Shriek on and see what good it does you! You're dead! 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 Well blasted fool. What are you staring at? 
to save my life, I couldn't have answered him. I couldn't look away from his blazing eyes, from his body crouched as if it were to spring at me from across the room, from his teeth bared in a bestial snarl. After the incident, our narrator begins to notice how inhuman Commander Craig is starting to appear, how strange his features seem, and how bloodthirsty his mannerisms during the incident. Craig sits down and sighs, acknowledging it and getting control over himself. He knows that he is becoming like the things that he hunts down here in the dark. He never goes up to the sunlight anymore. It terrifies him, what he's becoming, and how his men will no doubt have to put an end to him like that other madman that happened before. But he is a scientist, after all, and with that fear there's a kind of morbid curiosity about how it works and why it happens. The passing of the 415 Express from the Bronx rattles the little subway station again. The train is right on time, full of passengers, wholly unaware of the dangers that lie just beyond those little lighted windows. Now, this story really succeeds at creating the feeling of being in a dark, cramped little bunker underground, with the rattle of the passing trains and the squawks and hiss of early 20th century technology. The two characters are not really fleshed out at all, and forgivable since this is such a short story, and you never really know what the purpose of the narrator, what, he, what he's doing down there. But regardless, the tone of the veteran of the Special Division, Commander Craig, uh, his madness is clearly and masterfully shown. His change and twist really makes you feel um, trapped down there. And it was definitely a fun read that I would recommend to anyone interested in expanding their reading of Lovecraft or interested in weird fiction in general. So, the legacy of this story. Well, the subway in modern stories and movies is alive and well, being a setting rife with unexplained echoes, constantly dripping moisture, and seemingly limitless dark corridors. Uh, TVTropes.org uh, has an entry for the Sinister Subway, and it makes a great comparison to the haunted castle setting. I'll read that to you now. Where a haunted castle says Victorian, the Sinister Subway says Art Deco, or even Industrial. It can set the tone with the broken promises of an industrial age rather than the forgotten splendor of a Victorian past. And I think that that's absolutely true. It holds a unique place in fiction as a location that comes so preloaded as creepy and hostile, even if real-life subways uh, don't even come close to being like it. And above all, uh, let's appreciate Far Below as a literary first for creatures in the New York subway tunnels. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast and learning about the strange works of horror that have brought us to where we are today, I implore you to take a moment to write a review for the show. It'll help more people find out about it, and the more people we can get interested in this stuff, the better. And if you appreciate podcasts that are advertisement-free and want to say thanks or make a recommendation for the show, feel free to email me at author at matthewtansick.com or click on the contact button on matthewtansick.com. There'll be links for those things in the show notes. 
And lastly, if you want to stay up to speed on this or any of my other creative projects, I'm on Twitter at TANZ444, hands444. Feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks for joining me.